In the woods there grew a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest, and in that nest there was an egg, and in that egg there was a bird, and from that bird a feather came, and of that feather was a bed. Hi, you're listening to the Ghouls Gang podcast, where killing us won't bring back your apples. My name is Rebecca McCallum and I am assistant editor at Ghouls Magazine. I am your host today for the first time as well, so who knows what might happen. (laughs) So in the spirit of uh, it being May at the moment, uh, our theme is folklore and folk horror. Um, So we're looking at all things Maples, May Morrison, May everything. And uh, we're talking about a very special film today, and I'm joined by an even more special person, our girls contributor, Lakaya Palmer. Hi, Lakaya. We've got so much to cover. Can you tell us? Hi. Can you tell us uh, what film we're going to be discussing today? So we are going to be discussing the Wicker Man. (laughs) Woo! And in in the spirit of it, I'm wearing cheesecloth today. So. Lovely. <laughs> I hope you bought some Tim Peters. <laughs> oh, not a fan of Tim Peters. I'm like a Sergeant Howie in that respect. <laughs> um, so before we kick off our discussion then, do you want to just tell people a bit about who you are and what you get up to? Amazing. So yeah, I'm Lakea Palmer. I am a first year PhD um, film studies student. And I'm looking at masculinity and fatherhood in American horror cinema. And I'm also a contributor to the amazing um, Girls Magazine, as well as some other ones like Head Press and Moving Pictures Film Club. Amazing. And, you know, can I just say, we love having you at Girls. And personally, I just love all your insights. You always make me think about films in a fresh way. So I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Okay, so um, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of the film, just in case anyone hasn't checked it out for a while or you've not seen it before? Amazing, yeah. So um, The Wicker Man um, follows protagonist Sergeant Howie, um, who is uh, devoutly uh, Christian. Um, and he, yeah, so he's a police officer and he goes to the Summer Isles uh, to investigate a report of a missing child, Rowan Morrison. Only when he gets there, he discovers that the people of the Summer Isles have completely rejected uh, Christianity, um, which, yeah, poses a strong conflict to his um, Christian beliefs. <laughs> Amazing. And I like that you didn't give too much away there. You didn't spoil the end and it's all, no, no, it's no, all a mystery. No, no. Yes. <laughs> so um, The Wicker Man's a 1973 film and it's directed by Robin Hardy with a screenplay by Anthony Schaffer. And it is based on a 1967 book called Ritual by David Pinner. Um, and just reflecting on 1973 as well, it was the same year that The Exorcist was released. 
So clearly we were sort of thinking about faith and our relationship with religion in 1973. <laughs> so I wanted to ask them, what's your first experience with the Wicker Man and why did you pick it for us to talk about today? Yeah, so um, The Wicker Man was actually one of the first um, folk horror films that I'd ever seen. It was my first one. Um, and I just remember being really, really shocked at the ending. It's not how I expected the film to go at all. And not a lot of films really do that to me where I'm in genuine shock at no way did that just happen. Um, why I kind of picked this one to for us to discuss was I love the themes in the film. Um, I love the whole concept of um, paganism, the beautiful costumes, the beauty of the landscape, and even some of the rituals in the film. Um, I think one of my favourite scenes is when Howie thinks that he's discovered um, Rowan's grave, and when he opens it, it's actually a hair. And the whole village seems to be obsessed with hairs, right? And it's just <laughs> so, it's so cool. Like I love those themes of nature and just the beauty of the landscape. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great film and yeah, why not? Yeah, it's certainly a beautiful film. And um, for me, like my, I remember being around 18 and 19 and my boyfriend describing the, the film to me. He didn't give the, the sort of ending away, but he described it to me. And I've never heard any film quite like this. And he was telling me it's very like Twin Peaks. And yeah. um, I was deep into that at the time. And, you know, I really had remember having these strong images of what this film could be. And then watching it and, as you say, just really being bowled over by the aesthetic of it, by... It's almost like being hypnotised for, you know, an hour and a half that the score and the how beautiful the landscape is. Mm. It's very, um, it's a sensual film, I feel yeah. like, you know. Um, so thinking about like folk horror and the folk horror subgenre then, um, how would you define folk horror? I think for me, like the best and the quick, like the sort of quickest description I ever heard is that it's horror of, folk of people right yeah <laughs> but uh also like it's often tied to things like the earth and the land and like you say yeah. rituals and like connotations of the old way and the new way and like yeah. an outsider coming in maybe and disrupting yeah. an old culture so mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about you know how you define folk horror I think it's exactly like what you've just said like it's about folk it's about the community right so when thinking of even like more modern folk horrors like uh, Midsummer, um, the Haga are a very tight knit community, and it's the same thing that we see with the people of the Summer Isles. And even if you want to argue that Hereditary is a folk horror, the cult in, at the end um, in Hereditary, they're very close. Um, so community, I think, ties into it a lot. Like you say, the unknown versus the known. Um, the beauty of nature, the beauty of the landscapes, conflicting beliefs, um, the isolation of the protagonists from their normal life and um, survival as well. At the end of the day, does the protagonist live long enough to, <laughs> to tell the story? Perhaps, who knows, right? Yeah, I feel like so 
um, within Saukar, we have this thing called the Unholy Trinity, Trinity which is, yeah. yeah, the three <laughs> incredible films that I, I know you're a fan of Blood on Satan's Claw, so we've got Blood on Satan's Claw, Witchfinder the General, and The Wicker Man, Wicker Man. Yep. Three, three films that I absolutely love, yeah. and um, you know, I was thinking about modern influences, and you've already mentioned Midsummer. yeah, which absolutely, and then, you know, there's things like Classic Horror Story, which, which has use of sacrifice and then um the remake of pet cemetery which mm. has strong use of like masks um mm -hmm. i've talked about twin peaks a little bit there's a lot yeah. there and then there's also there's a ride at alton towers called the wicker man so it's even it's influence that goes as far as to amusement park <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah um you know we've talked a bit about the ingredients of folk horror and stuff mm -hmm. you know you've mentioned community um walking walking into like asylum pub right in this film i was like is this the first film where someone walks in and everyone's just like hush yeah <laughs> feels like a trope now but it does I'm sure at the time of wicker man that it was quite a new thing um but i always enjoy that um so let's get into the discussion of the like the film proper then mm -hmm. so talk to me a bit about your thoughts on the opening and sort of how he touching down in Summer Isle and what your thoughts are, your initial thoughts about Howie and the Summer Isles. Okay, so what I really liked about the first sequence um, of the film is we hear um, Sergeant Howie singing his traditional kind of Christian song in, in church, right? Versus when he's flying in his little helicopter to the Summer Isles and there's the contrast of like folk music that is playing, like the kind of folklore, folk music. And again, it's just striking imagery from like the first sequence of Christianity versus paganism, right? And in that kind of first scene where he's flying over, we get a lot of views of nature as well. So like the, yeah. the greenery, the vastness of the landscape, the green fields, bushes, the sea just the natural world and I think like you say um it's quite hypnotic like it's quite enchanting it doesn't feel at all like you're watching a horror film mm -hmm. and I feel that kind of way with um Midsummer as well um which again capitalizes on the beauty of the landscape so like the horror is almost hidden right because the landscape is so beautiful and my first impressions of Howie is like he genuinely thinks that he's doing the right thing like he's going there in his opinion to uphold the law to investigate you know this kind of missing child um so at first like I really get it like I, I sympathize with him I'm like right yeah like you're going there to kind of do your job and but it's obviously a shock to his system how <laughs> different <laughs> everything is. It's like if I was up from London and put in a kind of you know rural setting, I would probably feel you know like the same way. So it's 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 very easy to um, sympathise with him and his feelings and emotions when first entering the summer aisle I don't know if you kind of feel the same I, it's just so interesting to listen to so in terms of like you know I totally agree the sort of hypnotic 
quality of the opening and then flying in with that that score over the top mm-hmm. and I feel like seeing his small plane over this vast landscape is really almost like speaking to him being swallowed up into something and like yeah. him being rendered powerless right you know it, to begin with he's almost in like a limbo state between the mainland and Summerail. yeah um and I feel so as someone who naturally opposes authority and, and any establishment <laughs> figures <laughs> I am um, I find Howie to be totally agree of course he's on this sort of mission but I find him to be very haughty and buttoned up and mm. very self-righteous yeah. so um, in contrast to the summer else who seem, you know, very jovial, quite bawdy, right. they're like yeah. very sort of, you know, sexually liberated mm. um, and free. Mm. And I think it's interesting in this first uh, encounter with Howie and the summer else, and it will be repeated as well every time Howie sort of has an interaction with someone else in uh, summer else that he is placed on one side of the frame and the Summerals are placed on the on other. The other. Yeah. But this opposition mm-hmm. visually as well as, you know, like literally within the scene, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it'd be interesting as we go along to see if your opinion of Howie changes at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. I'll just mention then a few of the like key cast. So yeah. Howie played by Edward Woodward. Um, when then we've got Lord Summerale, who's played by the incredible Christopher Lee, who yes. famously played this part for no salary. God bless yes. him. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, um, <laughs> And Ingrid Pitt as well. Um, she. It has also been in Hammer Horror films as had Christopher Lee, which I think adds a it adds a certain like gravitas to the film, what they bring, but it also sort of defies expectations as well. Like this is very clearly not a Hammer Horror film. It's very yeah. different. Um and then we've got Britt Eklund playing Willow, uh Diane Salento. Yeah, we're for the for the listeners, we're both doing little hearts for Willow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love Willow. <laughs> and uh, we've got Lindsay Kemp as the landlord, uh, Willow's father, and then Irene Sunter as May Morrison. So then, um, I just wanted to mention as well uh, that all the extras that are in the film are actually from the local area. Um, and when they were shooting the film, it was like October, November time. So it's meant to be spring, <laughs> but it's actually absolutely <laughs> freezing cold. And apparently they had to put ice in all the extras' mouths to stop steam from coming out when they were when they oh were talking. God. That's <laughs> incredible. God so. bless them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I wanted to move on to discussion about authority and power then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for Howie, uh, it's quite clear for him, and I think this is one of the things he struggles with, is that his, he doesn't have the same power in Summerail as he does on the mainland. Right? Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. It's a shock to his system. It it's really like, 
because he's a policeman in the main land like you know how much authority police especially a sergeant right would hold but it's like one of the biggest like face palms for him is that kind of you have no power here right like <laughs> you need to get permission from lords somewhere else yeah yeah he really doesn't do like anything that. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> and you notice how often he will say to people i'm a police officer Mm-hmm. It's like it, it's like he can't help but always sort of try and use it as a a bargaining tool or as a, a means to to try and bully people into giving him information. And I think, mm-hmm. as you say, he's very taken aback that here authority is is not bowed down to, and yeah. uh, there's a different authority there. Um, yeah. So as I said, if uh, he's he's very stiff and self righteous, mm-hmm. um, but we see him sort of steadily lose his authority which sends him off balance and you know he's a man I think that likes to be in control and he's used to people obeying him and his instructions mm-hmm. so I, yeah. on, no, I, I was gonna say in terms of authority and power as well it's interesting that everyone goes to you know the discussion of Howie because he's a police officer but actually authority and power with Lord Summerall as well because I am not as a viewer wholly convinced that he entirely believes in the religion um or that the rest of the islanders do I don't know if he kind of plays along with it to keep his power to keep um them in check to keep them obeying him because they kind of do even though they do worship these deities and these old gods everything has to go through him so I mean he owns the islands right like his grandfather or great-grandfather or someone like that bought the land and and I can't help but see Lord Summer Isle and um, Howie as two sides two sides of the same coin two men driven to have this kind of power to have this authority to have this control yeah but in different ways yeah no it was literally next on my list to say to you I was going to say <laughs> how do you feel about the notion of Lord Summerall being you know the head of a patriarchal mm. society you know he owns this palatial house you mm-hmm. know and as you said, you know, the island's there and people have to go through him. This is not, it's not like a, a, a commune where everyone's on an equal footing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I completely agree. I think it, Howie and Summerail are two different kinds of power and authority on different yep. ends of the spectrum for sure. And um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of interesting uh, things to dig into there. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In terms of, you t- you mentioned at the top of the podcast about paganism is one of the things that interests you <laughs> yes. um, and religion then. So tell me a bit about what your thoughts are about how paganism and Christianity are explored in The Wicker Man and the different attitudes that sit within the film about those. Okay, so for me, like paganism is always kind of like well actually I should start at the beginning which is saying that I think people often get paganism 
confused with like occultism and satanism so for me how i define it as blood on satan's claw for example was more satanism and witchcraft witchfinder general was magic and witchcraft whereas the wicker man is really down to paganism and religion and for me paganism always kind of incorporates hidden knowledge that needs to be on earth right so like how he thinks Rowan's dead who's trying to unearth the secret of what they did with her was she a sacrifice right and I think what I really liked about um the scene where I think remind me of the school teacher's name is it Mrs Rose Miss Rose yeah Miss Rose um when she he kind of goes into the school and they're like well Rowan isn't dead like not really and then she goes into saying you know when the human life is over the soul returns to water or earth or fire they return to life but just in a different form and they believe in reincarnation rather than resurrection and actually I think Lord Samarail says you know they consider themselves as religious they believe in the old gods and the true god who Howie believes in is dead and Howie thinks this is absolutely bonkers but they think he is um, <laughs> right like it's 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 two kind of religions that are not willing to see the other side of the argument so another thing that really sticks out for me is Howie sees the the pagans as heathens and he's yeah. like have you not told these children anything about Jesus Christ like it's absurd to him and he leaves this kind of wooden cross in the churchyard that isn't really a churchyard because it's not Christian um but I feel like Howie really does try to impose Christianity Christianity to the islanders whereas the islanders aren't really trying to impose their religion on him they tell him this is what they are but they never once said you know you should think of like joining us or whatever so i feel like in my view even though they are both stubborn in seeing like the different aspects of the other religion I feel like the islanders are definitely more liberal if I can use that word whereas Howie's just a stiff that is trying to impose his Christian beliefs on them without really listening to what they're saying and he instantly judges them so I do feel like the film depicts Christianity as a bit what's the word um <laughs> like not not accepting I don't know if that would be the but, right word you, but like intolerant intolerant exactly whereas you know the whole thing about Christianity is Jesus wasn't really intolerant to anyone so how he's not really practicing what he's preaching is yeah. the vibe I'm getting it's it's almost you know it's it's hypocritical it is yeah. I um, think yeah I think like you say I think it's the way he goes about it it's there's really this air of superiority that he carries around his face isn't there um and as you've said you know 
he believes in resurrection, whereas the yes. Sumerals believe in reincarnation. reincarnation. You know, and they say to him, it's what we believe. So, but he can't respect that, you know, as I said, he's intolerant. And Sumerals says, we, we are a deeply religious people. To them, mm-hmm. that is their religion. Exactly. Um, but how he struggles with it, I actually think there's points where he's almost offended by it. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. And for him, there's no, when we when we say religion, that equals Christianity. You know, there is no yes. other religion other than Christianity, you know, and yes. you've already alluded to it, but this notion of the true God. Mm-hmm. Um, and just this idea that, of enforcing Christianity upon them as well. Mm-hmm. It just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And, you know, we'll talk later about where our sympathy lies towards the end. But definitely, <laughs> definitely in these moments, I have a strong dislike for Howie. Um, okay, yeah. But um, um, I'm 50-50. Like, I, yeah, we'll discuss later about my yeah. ending views. But in the beginning, I was like, okay, he's just trying to do his job. Now, in these scenes, I'm like, okay, Howie, like, chill out a little bit. <laughs> it, it is a little bit self-righteous. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, one of, the, one of the things that um, is always, always sort of apparent for me when I'm watching the film is the sense of inevitability about it. Yes. This sense of faith, that the role that fate plays and... Yeah control um you know just this feeling that almost we're on a set of tracks and everything's set in place and no matter what how he does his end point is going to be his end point and it's all constructive and even though once I get to the end and I watch it again I still go on the ride (laughs) you know and I still think oh there may be a chance that things will go differently but it's not it really feels like everything's like predetermined for him um I'm thinking like specifically about the dung beetle that's in the desk that's sort of wrapped around the yeah yeah, as being a literal representation of how he and his situation you know he's being led around towards you know, a a tragic face, shall we say? Yeah. And um, yeah, I believe that he believes he's in control for most of the film, at least. Yeah. Um, and he thinks he's preventing a sacrifice from taking place. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I think when he eventually ends up at Summerell's house, Summerell makes a. I only noticed it this on this view, but he makes this comment of. Oh, well, we've been expecting you, and it's yeah. like Howie's expression is like, well, what, like, what does that mean? But yeah. obviously, everything's just being controlled. controlled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Controlled, and somewhere else, just been waiting for Howie to turn off. Yeah. Um, you know, he's been led at every yeah. part where he thinks, oh, I'm investigating, and it's my yeah. investigation, really. You know, uh this is almost an investigation into him being led by the summer yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. um, so what are your thoughts on like the role that fate has to play and how how do you feel that Howie's journey is like predetermined by the summer else? So 
this is really interesting to me because there's one side of me that definitely agrees with you yeah and that's like he has no control over anything they said it um they said that they said that they controlled everything from the very moment he landed there but then at the same time Lord Summerall has a very good point he says that how he came there of his own free will he came with the power of the king representing the law he came as a virgin and he's a fool right they say that to him yeah. so it's like technically at any point he could have left and he had multiple opportunity to have gone back to the mainland they didn't force him to stay there and like one of my favorite scenes is when willow's enticing him you know singing naked and then he wouldn't have been a virgin anymore if he had acted on you know his clear desire for her and then that leads me to question okay if he had gone ahead and cheated on his fiance and slept with willow would they still have chosen him as a sacrifice because then he wouldn't be the right kind of adult for them to sacrifice? So on the one hand, yeah, like, you know, they led him there. They made him think this child was missing. And I think any of us will, would have, you know, probably been the same as Harry, like really trying to save this 12-year-old girl from being sacrificed of course but then at the same time he did have he was free to leave he was free to sleep with willow he was free to join them but he didn't so it's like i don't know <laughs> was he in control was lord summerall in i don't know like i feel like it's very 50 50 because like i said they didn't put a gun to his hairs so and those things, those things that howie doesn't do such as leave the island and have sex with willow do you think those things are part of his flaws i'm just thinking about tragic flaws and mm -hmm. things in his personality that maybe have meant that his fate is sealed I don't know. Is it a flaw if you are staying somewhere because you really think that you're going to prevent a child death? Like, is that a flaw? Is it a flaw to not want to cheat on your fiance? I don't. I don't see them as flaws. But then, does that tie into his self-righteous nature? Like, I don't. I don't know. Like, personally. I don't see them as flaws because I genuinely think that he thought he was doing the right thing. But then if he would have given in to temptation, which is flawed or whatever, that could have prevented the tragic ending. So I do. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm thinking like flaws in the sense of within the framework of his religion of like you say giving into right. temptation right. and then I almost have a point to this feeling of him wanting to be a hero yes. um, and and get getting satisfaction is not the right word but it's almost like he wants to prove them wrong right. and I, right. I think he's fueled by that and he wants to be the hero that rescues Rowan um, yeah. 
and the fact that he doesn't get to be that, I think, is is it bothers it's, him. It's problematic for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. One hundred percent. Um. So with you doing your uh, PhD, I wanted to ask about, um, did you have any thoughts about representations of masculinity in the Wicker Man? There's obviously lots of different presentations going on within the film, Mm -hmm. especially within the rituals and the costumes. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you have any thoughts on, on that that you wanted to share? Yeah, so we've already kind of delved into it a little bit about Lord Summerall and um, Howie and how I think that they're two sides of the same coin, just different ends of the spectrum. I feel like Howie is very clearly a troubled masculinity. He's, like you say, he's, 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 he's like a truth seeker, but at the same time, he's trying to be like this hero and it's tying into that like this hero complex that I think he has um and then at the same time like you have Lord Summerisle who isn't necessarily a truth seeker but I see him as power hungry um I see him as very power hungry but then I also do see how he as power hungry um and i think they use religion as a tool to kind of play into their desires um i can't help but think and i know we'll probably get into this a little bit later but the scene that really shows howie's flaws or or the fact that he's troubled is that scene with willow and even when he meets willow to be honest at the at the bar at the pub um you can see him kind of glance at her for a little too longer than he should have, right? And then mm. when she's singing, you know, that beautiful song and he's really, like, he's sweating, he's he's touching the wall. Yeah. He wants to sleep with her. But because of his religion, maybe, or his self-righteousness, he doesn't. But it's clearly a man that has a lot of, I I don't know if it's too strong to say that he doubts his religion, but I feel like at certain points in the film, we kind of see a crisis of faith. And I think the scene with Willow is definitely one of them because I think if she had sung to him maybe five seconds longer, he may have opened the door and gone into her room. So I think that's quite interesting, like maybe the hypocrisy of religion in this with its betrayals of masculinity. And then also um, you mentioned the costumes. Um, It's interesting that Howie's nearly always, I think, in his police uniform. Like, yeah, he is. But then with um, Lord Summerisle, he has more eccentric kind of um clothes and then my fate I think my favorite one yet is when he's in that long black wig mm-hmm. um and yeah some really cool clothes I don't I don't know if it's kind of commentary on um maybe gender fluidity but I think it yeah. was kind of beautiful to see um that in a film being made in 1972 
three did we say as well yeah um that is quite beautiful to see like you know the gender fluidity of the of the of the costumes and you know that Christopher Lee was quite happy to do that um so yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so in terms of if we start talking about rituals and nature and sacrifice then so um there's a point where somewhere else says of nature uh, that we she is to be loved to rely to rely upon to be feared and to be appeased which I just think is incredible yeah. um and I think you've got this opposition going on within the film of nature and order with yeah. Howie representing order and Summerell representing nature, nature. Yeah. yeah you know within the film rituals are very important yeah. You know, not just the obvious like sacrifices, mm-hmm. but the maple dances, the parades, yeah. the frog in the throat, which is yes. like the old one. Um, my mum used to say, "I'll like wash your mouth out with soap water." So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the sword chopping. There's like a moment where children are like they're driving like the dead out of the village. They're sort of yeah. chanting, yeah. Um, and then obviously sort of all the masks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the the rituals within the film and Howie's response to those? So I think just quickly touching on on the fact that you said um, Howie represents order and maybe somewhere else nature, I think that's really interesting because even though, I think we comment on this as well, even though nature is beautiful, it can be the place where horror occurs. So that's interesting that, you know, again, that nature represents this paradoxical place of enchantment and horror. And that's kind of, to me, what Summer Isle represents as well. But anyway, um, so moving on to rituals, it was really interesting to see the frog or the toad being put in the girl's mouth. And then how he's like, clearly, all, you're all barking mad. <laughs> right? Because he cannot comprehend, like, the old way of you know medicinal practices and everything and even when um there's that pregnant woman and lots of other naked young women and they're dancing around the fire again like what I said with Willow he looks at them a little too longer than he should have right and then Lord Summerall's like do the does the sight of the young you know girls refresh you and he's like no I'm like, I don't believe you Howie you're a liar I, I, Howie you're, you're a, a liar, liar Howie let's refresh you so I think sometimes like especially with that ritual he acts like he's disgusted but I don't know if I truly believe that he is or if it's more repression yeah, there's a sense of like the forbidden, isn't there? And yeah. maybe that's part of it. The forbidden is appealing and he's forbid himself from sort of open explorations of sexuality. Yes. <laughs> and even like when they're, I think the day before he's supposed to leave, they're like, you you, you must be going soon, right? Because you, you wouldn't want to be around here for May Day. And it's like, all right, Howie, why are you still there? They said you don't want to be here, so get going. And of course, naturally, he stays. And it's frustrating because 
again, like he makes out like he's so disgusted with these heathens. But why are you staying? Why are you looking at the naked naked women? Why are you letting yourself being enticed by Willow if there wasn't a part of you that was secretly a bit enchanted with their rituals and with them as a peoples? That's that's really interesting. That sense of there's always those, it, it, that moment where they say, you know, you don't want to be here. It reminds me of like, you know, those signs in horror where it's like, don't go into the woods or don't do this yes. or turn back. And you think, <laughs> but um, yeah, I definitely agree with you about the notion of perhaps how he's enjoying this more than he's, when he's making out. Yeah. It, more than he's making out, maybe even more than he's willing to admit to himself, you know, maybe there's something staring within him that's new to him and that mm-hmm. he's he's excited by but also frightened by as well. Yes. Because that's not the framework of how he's lived his life like to this point. Yeah. Um which ties up nicely to our next point uh, of discussion about repressed sexuality. Oh, Oh, there's a lot of that going on here. There's a lot of open sexuality, but there's a lot of like frustration and tension, isn't there? Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so you, you, you've mentioned a few times about Willow and mm-hmm. the moment where she performs. Oh, oh, it is ritualistic. And again, it's very hypnotic um, yes. dance for Howie. Do you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts? on that scene and what's going on and how this drives the story forward and how it speaks to how his own attitudes about sexuality as opposed to that of of Willow and what she represents. So I think in terms of just quickly discussing Willow first, she is obviously very beautiful um I think a boy at her window said that she is the human embodiment of Aphrodite and all these things and I think in this film the portrayal of women is that they're sexually liberated like Miss Rose um you know talking about the maypole being representative of the penis and whatever so I think obviously the women are sexually liberated and this both discuss and enchants our friend Howie um it's very obvious that he feels something for Willow um but obviously because of the fact that he's engaged along with his Christian views he is trying to repress that um there's a scene where he hears Willow having sex as well. Do you remember that scene like quite early on? Um, and it's disturbing to him, not because she's having sex, I think. I think it's because she's not having sex with him. With him. He's kind of gripping onto his heart, uh, his arm, maybe feeling a bit heated, <laughs> a bit hot and muddy. <laughs> I, again... It's the it's this double bind of no, he's not disgust because she's having sex. It's because he wishes that it was him. Um, and like when he goes to the school, and they're learning, you know, that the maypole represents a phallus, the penis, and he calls Miss Rose out and says the whole island is riddled with degeneracy. Yeah, 
um the scene again like what what we were talking about of willow singing naked banging on the walls trying to call him i can't help but see that as kind of or has kind of connotations to witchcraft um the naked woman enticing the men i couldn't help but think of like those medieval woodcuts of the naked witch and satan yeah um you know them engaging in sex with him which is interesting because if i am tying it to that then in this how we would be satan right and willow the witch which is <laughs> inter- it's an interesting image that pops up yeah but again it's like this thing of how he is not as pure as he makes out he is um but of course if i say ah oh, it could be tied to you know like witchcraft or magic i think that takes away howie's agency Mm. and saying that oh she's maybe cast a spell on him and i do think that he is fully in control of that situation and he does have agency and that he willingly wants sex with her and then there was a scene where do you remember the woman i don't know if she works in the school registry office or whatever but he goes in and he asks her um, for the birth, uh, the death certificate of oh, Rowan. Oh, the, li- the librarian. Yeah. 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 And um, when he's running around on, on May Day, and um, he opens the door, and it's her naked in the bath. He looks again for longer than he should, and says, "Oh, sorry." Again, how he is i he's he's given in to temptation but not obviously given into it because of course he doesn't kiss these women he doesn't you know have sex with them or whatever but it's very obvious that his mind is elsewhere when you know looking and speaking to these women and even that section where willow comes into his morning uh, his bedroom the morning after she sings to him and she says, I thought you would have come into my room last night. I invited you. And he's like, it's not you. But what does he say? He says something like, it's not you, but I'm engaged and I, I don't believe in it. Again, yeah. subtly letting her know that he does like her, but because of his beliefs or whatever, he can't act on it. So, yeah, there's a lot of repressed sexuality in Howie, and it just makes me kind of think if he would have had sex with Willow or the librarian or whatever, would he still be in the situation that he finds himself in in the ending? Or would they have killed him anyway? I don't know. <laughs> I, as well as sort of how he's like literal repressed sexuality in terms of his interactions with Willow, I feel that it's his attitudes about sex in general as well. Yes. So as you've said already, you've mentioned the the attitude towards what the school children are being taught and um, also just this general outrage at the way sexuality is on display in Summer Isle. I wanted to ask, um, as you were talking, it just came to my mind about, do you have any thoughts on whether the women in the film are lack agency because their primary um their primary 
objective almost is to sexually entice Howie. Mm. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Because on the one hand, especially for a film that's been made in the 70s, you know, when the women's liberation movement was just kickstarting and everything and women were fighting for reproductive rights and, 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 you know, equal rights and everything. I think it's kind of beautiful that the women in this film are sexually liberated. Yeah. Um, that's obviously great. But then on the other hand, it's like his samurai forcing them to try and tempt Howie or are they doing that of their own free will? I don't know. Yeah, because there's that sort of like towards the end, there's a shot where when Howie sort of realizes what's going on, somewhere else sat down on the sort of cliff, and yeah. the three blonde women sort of flock around him. Yeah, and I just look at that image and I go, oh, something about that disturbs me, and I don't know what it yes. is. <laughs> yeah, um, like he's the patriarch calling the shots, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But as you say as well, I do think that you said sort of within society, which is definitely, but I also think within horror itself, you know, here women are not being punished for being sexual, which is refreshing. And actually, if anything, how he's being punished for his virginity, right? Um, But then it, it, I can't help but, if the women were acting of their free agency and they did want to sleep with Howie because they wanted to, because they wanted to, were they doing that to try and help him? Because then he wouldn't be the right kind of adult. Because I can't help but think maybe Willow did like him a bit. I don't know. You see, this is what this film does to me. There's so many questions. Um. Another point that I picked up on for the first time on this watch was about um, Howie's behaviour and how that changes as things escalate. So in the sense of he becomes the things that previously he looked down on or, or he shunned. So when he arrives at uh, Summer Rail, he's not drinking alcohol, he's not very sexual, mm-hmm. uh, and he's certainly not violent. But mm-hmm. as things escalate, you know, he begins to drink whiskey, mm-hmm. he beats up McGregor, uh, you know, ahead of the May Day celebration. And then I noticed that when he dresses up as Punch, he's actually, there's a scene where he's actually smacking the women's uh, bottoms. Mm-hmm. So... He's becoming, you know, the lines of decency or what Sally deems as decent, you know, Mm -hmm. are definitely being blurred in his character. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, now he's drinking and he's being violent and he's being sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought that was an interesting um, point. It is. So maybe all those things are in there somewhere. Maybe it's what he really wanted to do, but in the character of Punch, he was free to do it behind a mask, right? Yeah, I think that's mm. it, exactly. It's like, you know, once he's anonymous, 
his desires can come to the forefront and he exactly. doesn't have to yeah <laughs> so then we've spoken around it <laughs> for a while now but um I'd like to get on to the discussion of the ending Ooh. so yeah. <laughs> um it's a lot for a Sunday afternoon um so um do you want to just explain in terms of where how he thinks things are going and yeah. where things actually end up going you can be, be as spoilerific as you like okay so how he finds rowan who is actually not dead and he is he's um freed her and they're running away together she's kind of said oh get me away you know they're gonna sacrifice me or whatever and he's so proud of himself he's like i found yeah. this missing child i knew it and she was like this way come this way this is the way out and then you know she's leading him through like this cave and they're escaping and you know the viewers are like oh yes go on howie you've solved it your instincts were right only for him to get out the cave and for rowan to say uh, lord um summer isle uh willow miss rose and the other blonde um woman to all be waiting for howie there and Rowan says, Lord Summer Isle, did I do it right? And he says, you did it fantastic. And she runs to him and hugs him. Only then do we realise that it was an elaborate setup and Howie was always going to be the sacrifice and it was never going to be Rowan. And then, you know, he tries to fight them off and everything. He doesn't win. And they put him in a giant wicker man and he is burnt alive <laughs> which can i say can i say that the ending of this film and i know it's a broad claim but i think it's my favorite horror ending of all time oh that's quite a that's quite a claim it disturbs me so much yeah for, for me it's like it's the moment where he's just goes above the hill and he up the cliff and he sees her it's like that moment and I, yeah. I like that we haven't seen it then either so we're, we're seeing it together for the first time so um, our horror is shared right in that moment yeah. I think what really gets me and I've been raised up in like a Christian household as well but what really gets me is it's 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 a crime well not a crime but it's not good in christianity if you use the lord's name in vain right mm -hmm. which how he never does and when he sees the wicker man for the first time and the realization hits of what they're going to do to him he cries out for jesus and honestly my heart at that point breaks like it shatters and like his face when he realizes you know when he's in the wicker man and he knows what's going to happen and he's he starts singing like the lord is my shepherd mm -hmm. i'm not gonna lie i cried like i did i cried because that is so horrible like it's an inescapable death you know that you are going to be burnt alive and there's nothing you can do but pray and while he's reciting, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
they're there again the contrast of christianity and paganism singing their ritualistic song but what i really like is how he i think before he's burnt before the fire works its way up and burns and he curses them he said like i curse you or something which is pretty cool because I don't know, like, it's a little bit out of character for him, but I do like it because it's the only thing that he can do in a situation where he is powerless, is pray to God, he's saying, listen, this is it, this is going to be my end, but I'm going to give him hell before I go and I'm going to curse them. Yeah, it's the only power he's got left, right? Yeah. Oh, so heartbreaking. Is it, I'm like, so I'm... sorry, but it is. <laughs> I, I'm not a religious person, but there's something very poetic in the moment and very poignant and I think it's like you say it's how he's sort of singing it's the summer owl singing it's the sound of the flames the animals yeah. just this yes. whole symphony of horror that's going on yeah um and I feel like definitely my empathy as soon as sort of he he realizes that Rowan's tricked him my empathy is definitely align stronger with Howie um because because okay. <laughs> I, I put myself into his position from that point and you know I, I was thinking gosh he doesn't really fight it but then what can you actually do do yeah you, you, you know you're surrounded by people and I almost feel like when they're putting the sheath on him he's almost in disbelief like he's traumatized yeah. so he's almost like frozen and he's just yeah processing what's going on so he can't yeah. he doesn't in that moment have the power to sort of kick back or run away yeah, yeah. or and um I think it just just popped into my mind but it is interesting that you know he's putting that white sheath on and you know there's something there is something very Christ-like about that and yes uh Martha's whole, death yes exactly yeah. yeah exactly but it's interesting that you say that your your empathy kind of you know lies with Howie when he realizes because at first my empathy was with Howie 100% but then like you say because of his intolerance I was getting a little bit frustrated he had every opportunity to leave he didn't and then he ends up in this position so I feel like the film really does take you on a journey right because yeah. at first yeah. I had no empathy, um, I had empathy for Howie, then I didn't, then at the end my heart was breaking for him to the point where I literally cried because I was like, Jesus, what a horrific death. And something else, just a, another thought that popped into my head um, that we haven't discussed is the maybe corruption of innocence and Rowan Mm-hmm. tricking him it's like the kids in this film are not innocent at all um <laughs> like when Howie goes into the school and he says you're all little liars and I was like that's a bit harsh <laughs> but in in reality it is true it is true and they were all working for Summer Isle so again like this corruption of innocence yeah. and this it, it's really interesting I think it's such a smart film yeah um and I feel like uh Howie is 
in those sort of final moments really clinging to his religion right um you know he does try and give a final plea of you know you're about to commit murder he's trying to like reality check them and go you know as much as i'm a job's worth (laughs) it doesn't doesn't, like this punishment does not fit the crime yeah (laughs) um you know and he tells them that you know growing the the growing of the fruit on the island is against nature and yeah. I feel like there's even a moment where we almost there's a moment between him and Summerell and this is when you said earlier about does Summerell believe in what he's doing I think this moment is a really revealing to that point where how he sort of says you know next year it might be you the sacrifice yeah, yeah. and you always see this like oh shit moment from Summerell of like yeah you're oh, right there yeah <laughs> but uh, he has have this facade of yes that's not going to happen I don't believe that because his I don't want to say that he's a cult leader but he does have essences of a cult leader about him I (laughs) see him as a cult leader I think he is no different to the people in the in the Haga that we see in midsummer and we are so quick to call that a cult which it kind of is and it's like I see no difference but then are all religions cult-like? You can argue that Christianity is like a cult. I don't know. <laughs> Too many thoughts. Um, I just wanted to say uh, it was interesting. I found this bit of information about the filming of that scene that because of shooting it in the sort of October, November time, they when the weather turned nice which it often didn't but when it did they sort of had to stop whatever filming they were doing and just seize the moment and get the outdoor shots that they needed and so um when the good weather came for this scene and they just sort of stopped everything and went right we're doing the sacrifice scene um ed woodward had not learned his lines because he's only got them the night before yeah so um the cast well, not the cast, the crew had to hold up boards and flags with all the words on so that he could read them, <laughs> which is, I just love that. I love that sort of, you know, go with, yeah, go with the flow kind of filmmaking. Okay. I think yeah. it's great. It and is. then, yeah, I just wanted to mention about the Wicker Man itself. Mm-hmm. So um, art, the art director, Seamus Flannery, took the Wicker Man through three different stages of inception. So to start with, he had daisies in its eyes, uh, which I'm glad he didn't go with because <laughs> that doesn't sound very scary at all. Yeah. Um, and he said, you know, it just made it look too friendly and fairy tale, but in a very innocent way as opposed to like a dark way. And then the second iteration he had was it sort of eyes were pushed in to its face to right. create sort of like shadow effect. But then he actually thought that was too evil looking. So who knows with with the gum of that one, maybe it would be even. I don't think you could take it, Kaya. And then (laughs) he he arrives at this sort of blank face, you know, no eyes, Mm -hmm. no nose, no mouth. And he talks about allowing how that allows the audience to project, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. they want onto it. And it made me think of Michael Myers. And, you know, the blank face there and how much mm-hmm. we respond to the, the evil of that, even though there's no detail, it's the mm-hmm. idea that we can just, you know, whatever our head minds can come up with is far scarier than what someone can present us with, right? Yeah. 
it's very true yeah I found the Wicker Man very scary like the actual Wicker Man itself um and again I just put myself in Howie's position and I just yeah I can't imagine it like just knowing in those final moments but again it, it definitely shows the film's influences and I've said this a couple time but even on films like Midsummer, in the ending of that with the burning of Christian 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 yeah yeah <laughs> um with the burning of Christian so yeah again I it's it's, it's had a magnificent a magnificent kind of influence on on folk horror and I really do think that it is one of the best folk horror films of all time really you can't you can't top it you can't top that ending um yeah so I feel like we have dissected this um you know maybe we could write a book about it now yes. um, <laughs> oh. uh, take a trip to, yep. to, to, the, to the locations you know um but is there any other thoughts you wanted to add before we start to wrap up is there anything that we have uncovered or any observations you wanted to share um no I think we've just about covered them like the only thing I would say is yeah like the corruption of innocence and the portrayal of of the children is quite interesting maybe for someone looking at um <laughs> children's representations in horror because it's not really one that I'd thought about before right when I think of children in horror I think of like children of the corn the exorcist the omen but actually I think there's something really interesting to be said with yeah. um, the representation of children in this yeah, it's not an obvious one, is it? Which yeah. makes it like really interesting one to dive into. So if you wanna if someone out there wants to write an editorial, we will accept that for Google's <laughs> magazine. <Whoa. laughs> um so I just wanted to mention a few little resources that I found if people wanted to dig a bit deeper. Um there's an article on Horrified magazine website called The Discomfort Zone on The Wicker Man by James Fleming. That's a really interesting article. Discomfort is such a great word to describe this film. Um, then there is a BFI article called The Long Arm of the Law, Remembering the Wicker Man, and that's by Vic Pratt. And then finally, there's an amazing video essay on YouTube by Front Row Cinema, and it's called The Wicker Man, The Monstrous Feminine and Summer Isle. So I would definitely recommend checking those out. Um, okay, well, Zakaya, I feel like this has just been the most fascinating discussion. I feel like I've learned so much. I've got lots to take away and think about. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I hope you've had a good time. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and let's definitely do this again. Um, can you share with us any details of up and coming projects that you've got going on and where people can find you online? Okay, so um, yeah, so if you follow me on Twitter, which is at Lakaya P, L A K K A Y A P, um, you can see uh, links to all my articles and things that I write for Ghouls uh, magazine, along with all my upcoming projects. Um, uh, yeah. Fab. Um, and just from me, I would like to take a quick moment to tell you about my latest project. I have recently launched a pocket book called Mums and Sons. Yay, me and Kay are both doing wavy hands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which feels like it may never was never going to come to fruition but here we are it's here um uh mums and sons looks at familial relationships across three stages of life using three films the babadook hereditary and psycho it's my first feature-length publication and it's got some absolutely stunning artwork by my friend ken win it's available for pre-order now and will be officially released on the 6th of May. Uh, you can order your copy by visiting Plastic Brain and that's www.plastic-brain-press.com or you can uh, head on over to my Twitter page which is at Pencil Pumpkin and there is a link within my link tree there. Um, I'm, I'm already feeling a bit overwhelmed at the positive response and the early praise and support so if this sounds like something that you want to check out, please, please do so and pass it on to anyone else who you think might be interested as well. Uh, so thanks for joining us uh, for this episode of Ghouls Gang. If you like this discussion, you can check out our back catalogue of episodes and don't forget to recommend us to, to anyone and everyone. Um, and visit ghoulsmagazine.com for all the latest editorials, reviews, and everything else that we've got going on which is lots at the moment but it's all good um your support means so much to us and it helps to keep us alive so keep it ghoulish everyone and remember some things in their natural state have the most vivid colors <laughs> can't believe i said that <laughs> thanks very much everyone bye bye and on that bed there was a girl, and on that girl there was a man, and from that man there was a seed, and from that seed there was a boy, and from that boy there was a man, and from that man there was a grave, and from that grave there grew a tree. Man, there was a grave, and from that grave there was a grave.